This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the things we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the third in our series on living with anxiety. Approximately 40 million Americans currently suffer with an anxiety disorder. Our first interview was on social anxiety. Last week's was on obsessive compulsive disorder. And today I'll be speaking with Paula Matlins, a 41-year-old woman, married mother of two small children, who lives in Bangor, Maine. Paula was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder back in 1991, the same year that she graduated from high school. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Paula. Thank you for having me here. I'd like to start with 1991, the year that you were diagnosed. Um, Tell me about the events that led up to that, finally kind of getting a name for what you were struggling with. Um, In May of 1991, I was preparing to graduate from high school, and I went to the local Hannaford. And while shopping, I simply needed to get eggs, and I had my first breakthrough anxiety attack. And I thought that my whole world was collapsing. I didn't know what was wrong. Um, So I got the eggs in a rush, rushed to the car, rushed home, which was less than two miles, um, and just sobbed in my mother's arms because I had no idea what was happening to me. Um, And I was pretty right that the world that I knew was falling apart. Um, Meaning that actually there were things in your real life that were really falling apart? Um, well, for the next 23 years so far, um, nothing has gone back to the normalcy or the lack of anxiety that I knew prior to May of 1991. So really leading up into that time, you didn't have like early signs of anxiety. It was kind of out of the blue getting the eggs. I had very clear signs of early anxiety. Um, they were all very easily, um, adjusted for by OCD behaviors, Um, Turning the light switch on and off, on and off, which is probably the worst because if it's on and you turn it off, then you need to turn it back on. But that's three times instead of four. And I really like even numbers, Um, making sure that I had always kissed my parents multiples of of two. So that kept everything in order for me. Um, I started to build rules um, and all of those rules kept everything very aligned. Um, For some reason, the eggs broke all of the rules. And do you, when you say for some reason, do you have any sense of what, what was the turning point of that moment, what it was about that? I would assume that it was uh, a month away from high school graduation. It was going to the University of Maine, planning to go to the University of Maine, um, and growing up in a family that hadn't really pushed for college, I didn't really know what to expect. I hadn't I hadn't prepared the rules for ages 18 to like 35. I had prepared the rules for even down to what my hair would look like as a mother, but I had forgotten to prepare for ages 18 to 35. So rules really help keep you safe, and you were heading into a world where you weren't going to have those rules, and so that was just terrifying. Terrifying. Uh, And so maybe we should actually go back before the eggs Um, because what I heard you say is that you had OCD much younger but that you were so it was you were so effective at managing it that it really wasn't eroding your well-being in the world like you you could actually 
do the things that you needed to do to minimize the anxiety, and it actually worked. Right. I was very functional. How did your OCD first express itself when you were a child? Um, it was touching the door frames, just making sure that if I touched it the right number of times. And I wouldn't have to start by touching it. It would be that if I bumped into a door frame that I had to go back and touch it to make it an even number. Um, making sure that when I got out of bed that my feet touched one time, one time, one time for each foot. And that would make two. Um, looking at the clock and trying to figure out, like, if it's one twenty-three, that then you have a three and a three. But then in crisis situations, you could also use the polka dots on a digital clock. And then you could have a four and a four. And that would be very reassuring. So th- there was something about an even number that just felt comforting and kind of right inside, right. inside your body, I'm guessing, like a feeling of rightness. Yeah. And you mentioned that you had really survived a childhood with OCD partly by creating a set of rules that worked for you up until age 18. Can you give me some examples of the of the kind of rules you created? I don't even know all of my rules because they seem so typical to me. Um, it's often when my husband will say, well, you have a few rules. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't even recognize it as, as kind of like one of the out-of-the-ordinary rules. Um, but there are just things that you need to do. Like, you know, if a spoon comes out, even if it's not dirtied, you'd have to wash it. You would never put it back in the in the spoon drawer without washing it. Um, you fold the towels the correct way, and that correct way, there's only one way. Um, somebody else's correct way might not make sense because it has to stack correctly in the linen closet. There are also things that I just completely ignore because it's so overwhelming that I can't begin to create a rule about it. Um, a great example is with my children's clothes. When my oldest daughter Hannah was born, I had to make sure that as soon as she was done with an item that we donated it right away. Because if I saved one shirt, why wasn't I saving another shirt? And then I was very worried that I'd get into like kind of a hoarding tendency that you know I would save all of you know, the blue shirts or all the skirts, you know, for the first events or whatever. So I've made one bag and that's what each of the girls get to keep. I see. So you really have figured out so many ways to kind of work around your own anxiety. There's a couple of rules. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So let's come forward again to back to the, the first panic attack that you had in the supermarket right before graduating from high school. Um, Do you still have panic attacks now? I do. I've gone from 16 to 30 a day to zero to one. Breakthrough anxiety attacks a day. And to what do you attribute that incredible improvement? Uh, Medication, behavioral therapy, talk therapy, a ton of work. Um, Also, sadly, um, limiting some of my spaces limiting where I go. Tell me what you mean by that. I don't go to the Bangor Mall. So the win of that is that I don't have an anxiety attack in the Bangor Mall. The loss of that is I had to drive to New Hampshire this week to make sure that I could get my girls their school shopping because it is easier to drive to New Hampshire than to enter the Bangor Mall. 
I see. So it isn't generic about all malls. It's specific to that mall. It is specific to that mall. In the past, um, people have said that maybe I'm just too cool um, to shop in the Bangor Mall. <laughs> maybe you are, Paula. <laughs> I fear that might not be true. I think that it's probably because I've had anxiety attacks there. And so why wouldn't I again? Right. I mean, it almost sounds like a kind of post-traumatic thing, like your body's sympathetic nervous system starts revving up, even in anticipating going there, I'm guessing. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And when you get a panic attack, what is that like? Describe it, like the actual experience of it. Um, the actual experience is all of the things that I would never want to do um, are the first things that come into my mind. So trying to push those things away. Um, my dad was blind. I would never want to be blind. So the first thing is thinking that I'm going to scratch my eyes out. Um, if that doesn't heighten me enough, I move right on to, um, to hurting other people. And so you have frightening thoughts that you might hurt somebody? Right, exactly. And then it frightens you that and you then have that thought. frightens me that I have that thought, Yeah. and then I have to flee. So um, just running. I was on the bog walk the other day, and everything was fine. Um, and then we got into the open space. I was fine in the trees, got into the open space, and needed to go back to the closure. And my husband patiently went back to the closure because after eight years of marriage, he knows that sometimes it's just easier to go with the rule. Um, And then um, he did all of the comforting things to talk about llamas, to talk about the girls, to talk about how many animals um, I love. And we started to walk again and halfway through the opening, there was no way back or forward. So I was right in the middle where I hate to be. So what did you do? I screamed. I pulled at my ponytail and ran. Um, and then started to remember that none of that was helping. And telling my husband, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. Um, because usually I just think, I'm not okay. I'm stuck here. I'm Something very bad is going to happen. Um, but just saying, I'm okay, really, 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 I am okay. And then really, finally, I was. So when you describe a panic attack, you're describing it as such a, like a, an emotional, mental experience of the kind of thoughts you're having. Do you also have the physical symptoms? I mean, do you have like your heart pounding out of your chest? The heart pounding out of my chest. Um, things get very disorganized, like I can't see clearly. Um, And I understand that it's all of the things that, you know, would happen because our bodies have experienced evolution and we know how to keep ourselves safe. That if there's a tiger chasing me, that my eyesight's going to narrow so I can kind of have eyes on the goal. I know that my stomach's going to clench because I'm not going to need any food for that moment. Um, But when you're in the Bangor Mall and there isn't actually a tiger chasing you, which I would much prefer than being in the Bangor Mall... um, there's nothing real there. There's nothing to explain to the onlookers that, well, clearly there's a tiger. Like, do you see why I'm running? There's a tiger. Um, why would you stop and explain, like, I'm having this crazy moment that makes no sense? No, you would never do that if you were being chased by a tiger. <laughs> you would never stop and explain. You would run. No, because people would know. It would make sense. Yes, and the problem They would completely no. understand. 
Right. So your body is responding to the tiger that others don't experience. Right. Yeah. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I did say to somebody during a panic attack, wow, sometimes being human is just so exhausting. And they got it right away. Part of what really strikes me about panic attacks is that there are some things when they happen again and again and again, we sort of habituate to them. They become less and less powerful because we're so used to it. And the way you're describing it, I'm I'm getting the sense that that is not your experience. You've had many panic attacks before, 16 to 30 a day, it sounds like at one point. But having the next one is in no means less of a big deal because you're so familiar with it. Right. I think because maybe I'm afraid that we're going to start riding that train of 16 to 30 panic attacks a day again, um, that something has become unhinged, that it is this time that I really am going to scratch, that I really am going to hurt somebody, um, instead of realizing that this time could be much like the last time and I'm simply going to pull the car over or I'm simply going to leave them all. You know, hearing that, hearing that each time you have a panic attack, there's this fear that this could be the time. I have to tell you, I'm so struck at your courage in coming here to meet with me, a stranger, to do this interview. What what was it that inspired you to want to do this? Because anxiety disorder makes no sense in my mind. The only way that I can balance it is that there might be somebody who learns from my experience. Um, It could be a provider. It could be a parent. It could be somebody who's having their first panic attacks. Um, A sibling. Just somebody who's going to be able to understand. So if it's me putting myself out there, there then seems to be a little karmic balance in the fact that I have it. Hmm. I feel so touched by that. Because I, I, I can see it's hard to be here doing this. Um, and what is it that you would most want someone to understand about it? That anxiety disorder affects me each and every day. Um, that it can be something as simple as going to the grocery store. It could be something larger like getting on a plane Um, but that it is every day and that my mind is almost constantly racing to try to figure out the exit plan. Um, That if you see somebody who seems to be having a level of success by going to work, by parenting, by having a stable marriage, that it doesn't mean that they're not somebody who has anxiety disorder. Um, Many people will say to me, I can't believe that you have anxiety disorder. You know, you go out and you do so much. Um, the real world fear things like interpreting on a stage or um, talking to many, many people who I don't know, those things are benign to me. It is the day-to-day things of trying to get food for my family or getting to the second floor. Those are the day-to-day things that make the anxiety disorder a disorder. And I don't want anybody to make the rules that I've made. I want people to be better, um, to have more freedoms. But if those freedoms come by coping strategies that might not be the best coping strategies, but they are the ones that get you a little further, it might give you the strength to find the coping strategies that are healthier.
there have been times that it continues to be hard when my dad was in the hospital in EMMC. Um, he had been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, and I really wanted to make sure I could get upstairs to see him. Um, so with my therapist at the time, we walked up a flight of stairs, down a flight of stairs, up two flights of stairs, down two flights of stairs. So yeah, the second time it, it continued to suck. The third time it continued to suck, but I finally got to my dad. It just, it wasn't the second or the third time. Was it worth it? Did you get to have a good visit with him? It was completely worth it um, because it was time with my dad. And as the months started to slip by and my dad was dying, um, every moment was worth it. I'm so glad for you. You braved it. So I'd like to ask you now about the things that really can comfort you, that can really make a difference. And I know you have a special thing about llamas, so I'd like to hear, what is it about llamas that that helps you? Well, I think that llamas are um, just kind of out of the ordinary. You know, they're there typically with sheep, and they look like this really funny, fuzzy, tall sheep. Um, So they're out of place anyway, but they're there to protect the sheep. So they have this really important job. So if you can look past the fact that they are out of place, you might be able to accept that they are working so much harder than the sheep. They're also, they can be a little skittish and people think that, you know, they're not friendly, but it is because their eyes are a little to the side of their skulls and they're worried when people flail their hands that their eyes are going to be scratched. (laughs) Um, So if you keep your hands down and you approach them gently and with some understanding and letting them know that you're not going to scratch their eyes, they're much like me. They're just there waiting for you to understand that they're trying their best. So they're like your soul animal, as it were. (laughs) They are my soul land animal. Um... The stingray is my sole water animal. Oh, tell um, me about that. They sting with serotonin. I apparently don't have enough serotonin, which is one of the reasons for my anxiety disorder. Um, as a very young child going to um, aquariums, I would put my hands in the water and all of the stingray in the entire pool would come away from the other children, away from the other visitors, even if they had food in their hands. And they would all come and they would layer on top of my hands. So I think that they come to me because they realize that I need a little of what they have, even though, you know, in captivity, they don't have their stingers anymore. So so stingers are serotonin-rich animals. They are, and I am not. As a prescriber <laughs> of many serotonin-based medications, I did not know that. Fascinating. Um, so one of the things that I see in my practice as a psychiatrist is that um, unlike you, anxiety doesn't follow the rules. <laughs> and, you know, like it rarely exists in these discrete disorders the way it's kind of, the way it's lined up in diagnostic manuals and psychiatries that are discrete entities of social anxiety, OCD, panic disorder, and so on. And what I'm hearing for you is that you, you struggle with panic attacks and agoraphobia, you have OCD, also generalized anxiety. So there's this kind of overlap and mutual reinforcement of all these different kind of flavors of anxiety, as it were. Right. And in my experience clinically, that you are absolutely not alone. 
This seems to be very, very common, if not the norm. Um, and I know there are other kinds of anxiety that you suffer from and that many do. So I'd like to actually ask you to tell me a little bit about that. And for instance, the fear of flying is something that so many people suffer from. And so I'm curious to ask you a little bit, to tell me a little bit about your fear of flying and how that's expressed itself in your life. Uh, my fear of flying completely limits me. Um, I'm aware that it would be so much easier to get on a plane and fly to Florida so I could then enjoy the rest of the day instead of driving 24 hours to Florida. Um, my fear is not that the plane is going to crash. Um, my fear is that I am going to have to get out. And that would really be a bummer <laughs> for a lot of people. <laughs> Um, you know, being that llama in the field that looks awkward anyway. Um, now there is a person who is screaming that she needs to get out of a huge plane and just the upset that I would cause for all of the other passengers is where the anxiety comes from. So you have a fear of flying that, that it has to do with wanting to get out of the plane. And yet, uh, there's so many other situations that are really hard to escape from. And I think about you being out in the middle of that field with your husband. And the other example that comes to my mind is being out on a long bridge. And I'm curious, are, is traveling across bridges something that's been hard for you? Traveling's very hard for me. Um, going over the Tobin Bridge, when my husband and I started dating, we were driving from Bangor to Boston. He didn't know all of the ins and outs of my anxiety disorder. I told him that I needed to drive. I needed to be in control. We started to go over the Tobin Bridge, and I put my head in his lap. Unfortunately, I was the driver. Oh, no. <laughs> so he needed to coax me back to, you're doing great, just a little to the left. <laughs> because, you know, he was trying to make sure that I didn't die, but also, you know, that he didn't die. <laughs> we made it over the bridge into the tunnel and we're fine. But um, it was pretty, pretty real for him at that moment. Yes. <laughs> and so, I mean, did you know what you were doing and you were just overcome and forgot or like what was oh no I just needed to get down I need to get low when I have an anxiety attack my first thing is to get grounded um unfortunately that's not the best idea when you're driving a vehicle and so do you ever drive across it now every time what do you do I start with the happy thoughts prior to getting onto the Tobin Bridge (laughs) I want to ask you one more question about how your anxiety has expressed itself you let me know that your experience as a mom, as becoming a mom, being pregnant and going through labor and delivery was also particularly shaped by your anxiety. And I wonder if you could tell me that story. Uh, absolutely. When I got pregnant with our youngest daughter, I had to come off some of my medications. So I was very uh, chemically unbalanced. Um, spent some nights just down in our cellar because it was the closest area to ground. Um, and avoiding anybody from seeing that I was pulling my hair, that I was screaming, that I was crying. Um, because our oldest daughter was in the house, my husband, I just, I didn't want anybody to see what I was defining as pure craziness. Um, and then when Gabby was born, I really wanted to breastfeed her. Um, but that I really needed to take care of Hannah and her and myself and our entire family. And that in order to do that, I needed to make sure that I was not breastfeeding her because I needed to get my meds back on board. So it sounds like a very painful choice born of necessity. Right. 
I always want to make sure that the girls know that they are safe. And I always try to shape that they are safe around the fact that they are with themselves instead of saying, it's okay, mama's here, I've got you. Um, which I will say to them sometimes, but more often I am saying, you're okay because you're with you and you're safe. You can depend on yourself because I really want them to know that. Right. So often as mothers, we want to comfort our children by our presence. But I can't guarantee that I'm always going to be there with them. And I'd like them to be able to navigate their worlds with themselves. So here you are. You've driven two hours to come and be here for this interview. When you've let me know unequivocally that travel is hard and you're speaking about things that are very tender, um, what is it? And, and you've let me know that therapy and medication have both really helped you. Given the degree of anxiety that you struggle with, are there things that you've done in your own therapy that have really made a difference or kind of approaches that you've developed over time working with a therapist that have really made a difference for you? I've been working with Dr. Tim Rockcrest for the last year, and only recently have we developed um, a system that works beautifully for me. So in my therapy sessions, um, Dr. Tim Rockcrest is very mindful of the fact that I'm a fluent signer and that I'm most comfortable in the deaf community, especially when I'm expressing thoughts that are very, very hurtful um, to myself. And so now Dr. Rockcrest asks me a question. We record it on my iPhone or my iPad. And while I'm, and I do it in sign language. And then we stop the recording and I interpret what I have seen. And what that allows is for me to step back from myself, from the ego, and to see that person who is suffering, um, to give voice and to give tenderness to that person. Um, but I still get the, the vantage point of, of seeing somebody who is suffering with the words that are being shared. It's so powerful because for me as a clinician, so much of what I do with, when people are overwhelmed with very painful emotions is help them, what I would say, unblend from that or disidentify, like just to get a little space from the intensity um, so that they can have compassion for their own suffering. It's a huge part of how I work and many therapists work, um, but I've never heard it described in the incredibly creative way that you do it where you sign it and then you become the interpreter for yourself so that you are both having compassion for self, but also communicating it to your therapist in a slightly, maybe, I don't know, toned down way or something that makes it safer for you. Is that right? It is something that um, I can clarify, like seeing it and I'm working in that moment. My mind is working. The process, it's not just about the emotions. It's about kind of digging through those emotions and figuring out what's there, what's there to unearth instead of just, you know, crying or being unintelligible or not being able to communicate at all because my speech impediment comes pretty lively when I'm upset. So it's such a fascinating way to get a little space from the intensity of it. Um, when you are in the midst of intense anxiety, do you ever become the interpreter of it to your husband or to other people who are around you? I'm working on that. I'm working on 
becoming the interpreter and not always trying to rescue people and just allowing some space to occur. Rescue them from how scared they are by watching you? Rescue them in general, that if I could just take care of myself, we'd probably be a ton of a way further than me worrying about taking care of myself and the entire world. I see, so that weighs on you heavily. It does. I love that story. I mean, I I feel like that's such a powerful thing to even, for me to think about clinically too, to have because it sounds like you bring your mind on board I mean, you can bring in some of your real gifts and strengths um, to get some space in a way that really helps you. So Paula Matlins, thank you so much for braving everything you have to come in today and to share your story. Um, We always like to end with resources and Paula has asked me to mention again that finding a medication manager, someone to actually work with you around medicine and to sometimes take medicines away or to tweak them and change them and educate you about them has been really pivotal. And um, you can find psychiatrists and nurse practitioners and even primary care doctors who can do that throughout the state. Um, And also psychotherapy, both cognitive behavioral therapy and talk therapy. It sounds like have both been really helpful to you. Correct. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having what is indeed a safe space. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole interview and you would like to, or you would like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. When you get there, you can subscribe to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can also download the show onto your smartphone if you'd like to use it for your morning commute. You can like us on Facebook. You can also listen to us through iTunes. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.